I'm Angela Kenneke, a veteran journalist with 30 years in television news and an investigative reporter. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm just a mom trying to find my way after the loss of a child in the opioid epidemic. I am grieving out loud, using my platform on TV and on social media to try to stop the stigma of addiction and get more people into treatment so that no other family has to go through the devastation that I and my family have experienced at the loss of our 21-year-old, Emily. Today I'm joined by Lynette Kozovich from Rimrock Foundation, and Rimrock is a treatment facility which offers a number of programs throughout the community of Billings, Montana. Thanks for being here today, Lynette. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. This has been really a great symposium to learn about things that involve both substance use and mental illness. And to have you here, it's been, it's been great for us too. Well, thanks for saying that. Let's talk a little bit about the mission behind Rimrock. It's been around for a long time, 51 years, right? What is your mission? What are you trying to accomplish there? You know, overall, we're really trying to reduce the chaos that substance use disorder brings on for people or the mental health issues that also often are accompanied by that. Um, we work with the families, the community. Um, we work with business owners. We work with all the aspects that are really touched by this horrible disease. We've seen the increase in use and the increase in substances, especially illegal substances in all of our communities and how that has taken its toll on families, on the court system, on so many aspects of life. What are you doing now at Rimrock maybe, or what are you seeing that you didn't see 10 years ago or do 10 years ago? Frankly, I believe that the biggest impact to us as providers and to our community and those that are in the depths of their substance has been the methamphetamines that are funneling directly here to Montana. We've, we've watched the papers, read, read the papers, watched the news, and we've actually seen how on the coastal regions and other parts of the country where the opioid crisis has really raised its head. We have that problem too, but not to the extent that we have with the methamphetamine. And it's affecting everything. We, we've seen an uptick in violent crime because of that. We've seen um, our child welfare services really be uh, negatively affected. I, we personally were affected. I, I watched my mom and dad's house as they go down south, get away from these Montana winters. And um, one day I drive up and the window's busted out and I was immediately alarmed thinking, gosh, is somebody in there right now? And I called the police and they got there and their house had been tossed, starting with the bathroom. Uh, they were looking for pills or some sort of something small. They stole all my mom's jewelry because it's easy to pawn. Um, but the, the most curious thing I saw was, uh, you know, back in the day, you got a silver service or you got silverware for your wedding. My mom's silverware set was strewn on the floor. The, the forks and the spoons were missing, but the knives were left. And I said to the policeman, what's up with that? And he said, oh, these people are so savvy, they know the knives are hollow, but the spoons and the forks are solid silver. And so they'll just take those things that are easy to pocket and go pawn for the silver. I was shocked. I think, though, one of the things that we have a hard time understanding are these kinds of crimes that you say you were, you know, personally affected your family by a crime, a drug fueled crime. Many people who would never normally commit crimes, once they get become addicted to these substances, start committing crimes. And I think that that we, we classify everyone who uses as a criminal, right? But they are they're human beings. That's, Can you tell me your take on that? That's, that's absolutely correct, and I, I'm with our patients 
sometimes as often as once a week in a formal setting to talk to them about their goals and other things like that. They are just people. And uh, one of them had said one time, the drugs take away everything that you have and all you have left is the drug. And then they end up doing things that they would never dream of doing, petty crime, violent crime. Um, it's a spiral they just can't seem to get out of. And, they, and I think that's where a lot of the shame comes from. They weren't taught that way. They weren't brought up that way necessarily. But when all you have left is the drug and you're a slave to it, you do those things that you would never do otherwise. So what's working over at Rimrock to treat people? Well, we really believe in long-term treatment. and the Not just 28 days? No. There's no magic number no. about 28 days? And um, we really feel uh, it, it's like getting a booster shot. Even after we, we've t we talked to people that have uh, been sober for 28 years, 29 years, and they still get booster shots. They meet with a counselor. Or they, they have a very good supportive group that they can commune with and really uh, encourage each other. The challenges are great, though, because often um, the stay is dictated by an insurance company or Medicaid, and I think that's one thing in Montana that we're really starting to get a grip on is we're, we're talking to our state legislators, we're talking to our Medicaid department and um, our state department to say, let's work together to really see what is best. We don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over again, you know, a 20-day stay, a 28-day stay when we could really make a much, much more impact on a longer stay that was really individualized for that person. Where does the money come from for that? Exactly, exactly. You know, Montana's one of those few states, we don't have a sales tax. Um, just about everything is funded through a property tax. Um, we expanded Medicaid um, back in 15 and we've re-upped uh, this past legislative session to make sure that those people that prior to now had no coverage whatsoever, uh, have some sort of safety net. Um, that has been helpful, but it's also harmed us. Um, as a provider, I'm, I'm speaking now, our percentage of Medicaid clients has gone up substantially, nearly tripled, and the reimbursement hasn't stayed up with the cost of doing the business. And so we work in advocacy a lot to see that we can get the legislation to understand it really does cost a lot to, to provide treatment. Um, and if we can just get those basic costs met, we could make a, a bigger impact. Is it less expensive to treat somebody than to lock them up, per Absolutely. Se? We were just seeing a slideshow not too long ago. Um, average cost of incarceration for one person for one year in Montana is over 30000 And we know that um, the beginning of treatment we could do for uh, maybe half that, and then drop them down to a level that even the, the cost would even uh, reduce from there. Huge societal changes take time though, right? I mean, it's almost like we, the way we've been doing things for decades, and the way this problem has escalated, hasn't really kept up with the way that we do things, right? Or the way we do things hasn't kept up with the problem, let me rephrase that. So what is it going to take, do you think, for all of society to kind of say, yes, this is, this is a better way to get a hold of this problem. Um, we're losing so many people, so many lives. Even if, even if they don't die, we've lost their potential, you know, as a contributor to society. So how do you get that message to people and to, to people who control the money, especially? I think everybody's vote matters. And everybody has an obligation to get out locally, statewide, nationally to say, tell me how you feel about this issue. Because if we don't 
if we don't all start pulling together, we're lost. And it, it, I think we've started tapping in on that, even here in Billings, Montana. This past week, one of my board members said, I'm hearing so much more about that. And he says, I don't think it's because I'm in tune with what's going on at Rimrock Foundation, because he is, but he's very connected in the community. We are very fortunate that some of our city leaders here are paying attention and they understand the ultimate impact. So it's a matter of getting out there, talking to those people that make the decisions, influencing them, or at least telling them the truth of what we're facing and, and help them make better decisions all along. And you just recently had some national attention on Mayor Mock. We did. We actually had President, uh, Vice President Pence here um, and we have two women children homes where these are more long term, a year to 18 months. And he wanted to see one of our homes and how it was actually working. Um, pretty eye opening and we got to say some of the things that have happened at the federal level seem to start, they're starting to filter down to the state level, especially from a, a fiscal perspective. Um, but we, it's not done. We have a long ways to go. There's some policy being changed at a federal level that I think um, it is going to be helpful. Some of the privacy laws, I think, have really contributed to the stigma that we continue to have around substance use and mental health. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, there's a there's a law, 42 CFR Part 2, and we... we is that federal or...? It's or federal. federal. Mm -hmm. And we, we call it HIPAA on steroids. And it's a, it's a law that, in, in the olden days, <laughs> it probably had more value. It, it, it protected people from the privacy of having some sort of mental illness or, or substance use. And what we've Disclosed found, to... Yeah, to anybody that didn't. But it has also impeded us from practicing. And I'll give you an example. Say I had a 16-year-old son that needed substance use treatment. If I brought him into a treatment center and we signed all of the different forms and I'm paying for him on my insurance and et cetera, et cetera, even though he's 16, he has the right under this law to revoke any information released to me. So tomorrow, if I would call Rimrock and say, hi, my son's there, I would just want to check and see how he's doing. If he has revoked my consent, they would say, I cannot confirm or deny that your son is here. And I'd say, of course he's there, I dropped him off, he's on my insurance. And once again, by law, they'd have to say, I cannot confirm or deny if your son's here. The only way we can break that law if, it, if there's imminent harm to themselves or others. The feds are looking at that and they're saying that maybe that is too restrictive. Of course, we want people's privacy just like HIPAA. We don't want people to know all your business about your health, but there's ways around it. And I believe right now it has contributed to the stigma that we don't talk about it at all. So we continue to whisper about mental health and addiction and it keeps us in the dark ages. Keeps people sick. Keeps them sick. Secrets keep people sick, right? Exactly. And I understand the need for privacy and maybe the need for not everybody to know if you know, you're struggling with something that you're getting treated for it. But for the people that are trying to help you or the people that are trying to make sure that you're going to live or trying to save your life, it seems to me like that, that there's another... It's another barrier. Mm -hmm. It's a barrier to getting well. And I think that there's logical ways to be able to do that. I, Many states have gone to an electronic um, patient record that is shared amongst providers, oh. from your primary mm -hmm. care provider to your mental health provider to emergency rooms. In Montana, we're working towards that too. And one of the things that has held it up a little bit is really figuring out who and how can certain people get knowledge of what's in that patient record. 
because of this law. So it is impairing our ability to do whole person care. If, 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 if a pro provider's only given access just to look at their physical health, but they don't understand maybe the reason that they're having an addiction to opioids is because of their physical health, we've just negated everything we tried to do in the beginning. So we've got a little ways to go. Also, Rimrock is a private nonprofit group. Uh, I think the thing that I've been learning a lot about and talking a lot about is the fact that addiction issues are often treated outside of the medical system, that physicians maybe get one day of training. Everybody else in the medical profession, it's an elective. Do we need to have better education among our health systems and among our healthcare providers on this issue? Do we need to have more screenings? I mean, we do. More I'm partnerships. A, exactly. I'm, I'm a nurse by training, and I even remember when I had patients on the floor and I'd be looking at their chart, and they're in for some gallbladder disease, and their secondary or tertiary diagnosis was alcoholism. We never even paid attention to that. It's like they're here for their gallbladder, right? The big movement that we're seeing right now, and we're very active in it in Montana, and I'm so hopeful, is the integrated behavioral health model teaching primary care or obstetricians or others internists that are on the front line of physical health to recognize those things that do interrupt whole person health and then making a correct referral to a behavioral health specialist or an addiction treatment. Um, the Beha Behavioral Health Alliance of Montana has been working with the primary care association here also to see how we can do some very uh, strategic integration. So. We don't see that separation anymore. Let me ask you how you feel about better, higher standards for addiction treatment facilities, for a more, more unified standards across the board. Because as you know, when you, Rimrock is a very reputable place. You've been around for 51 years. You know, you're doing good work. You're a nonprofit. But anybody can hang up a shingle and call themselves a treatment center, right? So have you seen that in action? And, and what do you think are the best practices that maybe all states or even the federal government could, could adopt to try to avoid some of those, what do they call it, like treatment scams? Yeah, the pop-ups. And, 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 and where it's beneficial for them to get treatment over and over again, you know, financially beneficial to the center. Uh, they don't really have an interest in seeing people get well. Right. We've heard about these stories, right? They're there. And on a national level, some of the national organizations that we belong to have really taken this to task to say this can't happen anymore, this false advertising, this, these mills. I think standardization is the key. If you cannot prove quality and service in any, in any sort of delivery model, they should not be allowed. We, we are CARF cert certified, and it is hard to be CARF certified. Our state does a pretty good job of monitoring to see if people are staying up to standards, but there's only so few of them also. Um, it, it, was a, it was a kind of controversial here in Montana a couple years ago as they opened up access, and I said, I'm all for that. We want to get people in as soon as we can, as long as the state continues to check on quality to make sure that the people that are opening up are delivering what they are supposed to be. So do you think that's a state-by-state state issue where each state would decide its own standards and qualifications for someone to call themselves a treatment center? I think it has to have two levels of checks and balances. I think the feds, like, or a national organization that has some standards that must be adhered to, uh, and whether that's the federal government or an organization like CARF, 
and the state have to partner to assure that those things are happening. You know, we were really lucky many, many years ago, um, many states signed on to the nursing compact where you could go from state to state as long as you proved your credentialing were meeting the standard of care. So I could be licensed in North Dakota, South as a Dakota, mm -hmm. as a nurse, Montana. I think that that kind of thing could also be done with treatment centers. And that gives us, and then have the states check that to make sure that they really are adhering to the, the standard that maybe the federal or a regulatory body has set. A couple of uh, difficult things for families. One is just getting their loved one to go to treatment in the first place. It can be a really hard thing because it's the only disease where people deny that they have anything wrong with them. The other thing is how do I know where to send somebody? How do you know what is a good treatment facility? How do you know what is the right treatment facility? Because each individual, I mean, I think no two addiction is alike, right? And so no two treatment is truly identical. Um, how do you know? You know, I think you and I and, and most of us would probably, first thing we do, we'd get on a website and we'd Google yeah, sure, treatment research, services right. in Montana. And granted, you, you could have a really good web developer and have a beautiful page and terrible services or vice versa. You spent all your time having great services and have a terrible web page. I think calling the facility and talking to those people. If you get somebody on the line that isn't passionate about the services that are provided, that aren't informed about what kind of things they could do for your loved one, you need to make another call and maybe another call. I think that is the key because people that are in this field, frankly, I'm going to say it, aren't doing it for the money. Nobody's getting rich. <laughs> Nobody for is this. getting rich, right? You know, a third of our um, populate our employee population are in recovery themselves people that are passionate about this field, you will know it. And those are those people want to stay up on their skills, they want to make sure that their patients do get well or get down the road to wellness. So that's how I'd recommend shopping around. And then the whole road to recovery can be one that is that is really tough. Yes. We we have a family week once a month where the families come. It's it's intensive. It's a lot of didactic. They learn about the a lot about the brain disease, but they also learn a lot of coping mechanisms or how to deal with codependency, um, things like that. And one of the comments, I, I see all the evaluations, and one of the comments I get that breaks my heart because I feel we have not got the message out there as well as we could is they say, I didn't need to hear that thing about relapse. And our message is relapse is part of this disease. What we're trying to help you is gain some of those skills to deal with the relapse and understand why it happens and what you can do. So um, it's, it, it's, it's a barrier for the person hearing the message too. You want a cure. You, you want, want a fix, a 30-day fix, fix. And, and everything's fine. And then if, if you do relapse, then you're a, you failed, right? Right. Which is really a horrible thing for the person in recovery to carry around with them exactly. as well. Exactly. And still, I think a lot of society believes that. I'll be at our legislation every other year, and I'm walking around with our outcomes booklets, and what I'm trying to show them, look how many more people are employed or have a home or are reunited with their children, and they have good spousal relationships, and everything is starting to gel for them. And I'll get the question, what's your success rate? And I always answer with, what do you mean? how many people relapse? And I said, that's not a success rate. I mean, we don't punish people that have diabetes and all of a sudden have a spike in their blood sugar. 
it's they haven't failed they're getting back into their program so they can have those normalized blood sugars it's the same with addiction the only thing that's so scary about relapse today uh, the potency of the drugs out there so you've got fentanyl um, deadly fentanyl a, a synthetic opioid being put into so many things that relapse is dangerous it is very dangerous and, and if it it's a natural it, part of recovery then what do you yeah, do about this problem it, it is so frightening it is it is um, <laughs> We, we introduced to our program about a year ago um, Narcan that, with our families, showing them how to use it, to have it. What do you think about fentanyl testing strips? Those are available they too. They are too. They are too. And that's something we haven't introduced yet, but we've talked about it with our leadership team. But anything that we can do to just um, heighten awareness right. and look for those signs and intervene early. I mean, it's it sneaks up on you. I mean... Uh, it's, it's, it's shocking, but anything we can do to arm people uh, for preventing those things. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to visit with me. It's been a pleasure to meet you and to learn more about Rimrock, too. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Angela. I believe we can all learn from each other as we walk through life, and by sharing our suffering, we can lessen the suffering of others. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. To read my blogs and join us in our mission, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. Also, please rate and review this podcast. Thank you.